Hello and welcome to the Analytics FC podcast. We have a special edition of the podcast for you today, so without further ado, here it is. Welcome to the Ankara Business Behind Sport podcast. I'm Johnny Gray and I'm your host. And also welcome to the Analytics FC podcast. I'm your co-host Alex Stewart. Yes, this month we're deviating a bit. We're recording a joint podcast with our friends at Analytics FC, which will go out on both of our channels. It's a special joint edition, if you like. In this edition, we're going to look at the best practice in buying a football club. That's right, Johnny. In this joint edition, we want to look at the dynamic club acquisition market in football, and in doing so, showcase why our two firms are increasingly collaborating in this area. Great, Alex. It sounds good. So we're going to be joined by two experts in the field from each company. And so first, I'd like to welcome from Analytics FC, we lucky to have its managing director, Jeremy Steele, with us today. Welcome, Jeremy. Hi, Johnny. Good to be here. And from Ankura, we have senior MD, John Brown. Welcome, John. Thanks, Alex. Good to be here as well. So before we get into the detail, perhaps, Jeremy, you could start by just explaining your involvement in the club acquisition process, how you came to get involved and, and the sort of things you do. Yeah, sure. So Analytics FC have been in the in the kind of football market and football space for a long time, mainly working with clubs and, and federations and, and players as well. And the acquisition space kind of opened up to us through some kind of smaller projects to begin with. So we'd have investors coming to us asking for help with assessing strength of squad, valuation of squad, I'm looking at using some of our kind of data models, like our transfer valuation models, our salary benchmarking types of models. And we kind of spotted that there was a bit of a gap in the due diligence space. So we began to kind of discuss with investors about which areas were kind of blind spots to to their investment process. So there's kind of the established methodology of, of looking at kind of the price of a club and the commercial operations of a club, but not so much looking at the the sporting dynamics within a club. So yeah, we found that this was a, an area which needed work that could help to give investors that peace of mind that they knew exactly what they were buying on the ground. What is the club? What is their kind of their, their reason for being? What's the, the, the key strengths and weaknesses in terms of the sporting operations of the club? And yeah, and we found that our expertise we've within our company, we've got as well as data scientists, of course, that's a key part of our business, but we have the ex-CEOs of football clubs, we have sporting directors, I myself was a sporting director, uh, we have staff with experience working with federations, with UEFA, with FIFA. So yeah, kind of assessing what a club is on the ground, whether they're a club that makes their money through qualifying for Europe, or whether they're a club that's a pure player trading club that kind of hovers mid-table in a division, but but makes its its uh, money or breaks even or attempts to break even through through player sales, or alternatively, a club that has a fantastic reputation for developing players, and that's their, their model, a kind of academy model. So as I say, we've done lots and lots of work now with various different investors in various different ways, but essentially, it's that sporting due diligence that we uh, that we aim to, to, to support them with. So yeah, it's been an interesting journey and um, and one that takes a different angle, a different kind of perspective on, on club acquisition. And what about you, John, from Ankara's perspective and also yours personally? Can you explain your involvement? Yeah, so again, on the due diligence side of things, but primarily more sort of financial advisory, I, I guess you'd say. And, and the areas that we would support on would be valuing the club, financial diligence on the club, potentially helping if there's a dispute post-deal, and then also some diligence of the non-financial areas that people maybe sometimes overlook. So to kind of unpack those individually, so the valuation of the club, 
That's really looking at um, its assets, its liabilities, key revenue streams, commercial deals that are in place. Historically, that's been a relatively straightforward business because football clubs themselves are, are, are quite simple in terms of businesses. So not that many revenue streams, not that large in the context of, of the corporate world. Yeah, you know, you have your match day revenue, commercial revenue and sponsorships, broadcast revenue. As Jeremy mentioned, some make money from player trading, so buying and selling players. One thing we have seen as a bit of a trend is, is that valuations don't necessarily bear resemblance to how you'd historically have thought they, they might have looked. So you're looking at a club like Chelsea, and if you were to value it as a business, it would give you a very different valuation to the, the sale price of Chelsea, but that's been sort of much talked about. The financial diligence is really looking at the sort of the robustness of the revenue streams of the club. So for example, again, sort of going back to something Jeremy just mentioned, if a club is playing regular European football, that provides a sort of disproportionate level of broadcasting revenue. But what happens if they miss out in a particular year? So maybe for one year it's a bit painful, but not disastrous. But um, if it's a prolonged period of time where they're missing out from European football and the club has perhaps a downward trajectory, then that's going to have a real financial impact. And that's the kind of thing that you'd want to be aware of going into to a deal. And it even moves into things like sponsorship. So out of Europe for two or three years, that can have an impact on your sponsorship deals. And either if you're looking to renew, people are less willing to be involved in the club. Or actually, if you've got long ongoing sponsorship deals, there can be a sort of ratchet mechanism within those that means that the payments to you drop if you're less exposed through European football. Other things that you'd look at would be things like the players. Are they, are they going to stick around? Are there contractual issues that mean that you're going to lose players relatively soon at an undervalue? Maybe their contracts are expiring, that type of thing. I briefly mentioned the, the dispute side. You know, no deal is smooth, 100% smooth, and either side can end up in dispute. So some of the things that we would work on there would be assisting either the buyer or seller if they do have a dispute post-transaction. And then the one that I thought is quite an interesting and developing area is non-financial due diligence. So more sort of reputational issues. And it's an area that can, can sometimes really be overlooked and that's certainly in the corporate world, but, but very much um, in the football world as well, we see this now. So what I'm talking about there is the sort of nasty surprises that could emerge after a deal that could impact on your reputation. And if you think of, say, you're a US investor, potentially a regulator in the background, you don't want to acquire an asset that's going to give you some form of regulatory issues. And an example of that might be, you know, you take an ownership stake in a club, the owners or the other investors have got some exposure to sanctions. They might be targets for authorities. You know, it's not the kind of maybe business partnership you want to go into with your eyes closed. And on the more sort of football side of things, in certain parts of Europe, you've got the kind of the ultras, the hardcore fan groups that can be really tied to organised crime. And in the country itself, it might be really obvious and, and people in, in the country will know the club's situation, but not to an overseas investor. And again, you'd probably want to understand that in advance because it increases the risk of the deal. And particularly if you're an investor, you're going to need to build a relationship with fans. So you're going to want to know who those fans are. So that's those are the sort of emerging areas that we're increasingly getting involved in. Brilliant. Well, thank you both very much for, for setting out sort of where respectively Analytics FC and Ankur sort of coming from. Let, let's move on now and talk about the club acquisition process. And Jeremy, maybe I can start with you. We've we've seen a lot of movement in club acquisitions over recent years. I mean, gone are the days where the successful local businessmen sort of owned the local football club. We now see nation states, private equity, venture capital, merchant banks, Goldman's just entering the direct investment market. 
ultra high net worth individuals and sort of family offices and some consortia all entering the market. How have you seen it change in recent years and where are we heading? Yeah, I guess it depends on depends on which markets you're looking at. I think the the kind of high net worth individual, even local businessman kind of character owning football clubs is still relatively common on the continent. And we've done a few projects with those types of investors and those types of, of club owners and try to support them with kind of structuring things in a way which allows them to still compete on the pitch and still kind of allow them to continue to, to own a football club, even though potentially that pressure is, is getting almost untenable. But you're right, that kind of influx of money from VC and private equity really is changing the the landscape within especially the big five leagues. And of course, there's the, the, the new kind of Saudi venture has come up in the last couple of years so so yeah I, I think the thing that we've noticed is especially from a club acquisition and due diligence perspective is a lot more focus upon that so when we've worked with investors in the past who haven't necessarily come from let's say the US market which is obviously a big one in terms of club acquisitions especially in the UK especially in Italy being a, a really big focus and, and they're starting to spread the net a bit wider throughout Europe but that kind of um, uh, of investment from from the American market, there's a much more mature way of looking at acquisitions, where um, the the need for much more in depth due diligence has has taken taken grip. And I think that's where we've seen a real increase in in the need for our services, which is the need for information. And and, and John mentioned it there about you know, looking at, I mean, we had one investor, for example, who was very, very interested in a club in Eastern Europe. And it's a very strong club, qualifies for Europe regularly. It was a good deal. The price was good. The club is well run. Everything's well structured. His, this is a high net worth individual, his, his kind of question marks were around the, the, the reputation of the current owner and their links, not necessarily with organized crime, but certainly with with financial institutions that they didn't want to, to to be associated with, and also in terms of the the business environment within within that particular country. I mean, it wasn't it's not a particularly badly regarded country in terms of business environment, but it was something which which certainly brought up some question marks, and in the end, kind of scared the investor away from from getting involved. So, I think when it comes to that kind of more mature investor, rather than people kind of throwing the money around for a trophy asset, which potentially was the case in the past, as I say, high net worth individuals who wanted to to show off, buy a club, and and own that, invite their friends to to matches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think there's a much more kind of focused. Uh, due diligence process that has to go on when you're dealing with kind of institutions, as you mentioned, like a private equity or, or a VC or, or, or like you say, Goldman coming into to, to the market to do deals. So that's actually really opened up our kind of approach to doing this because when those individuals want to buy a club, they also want to know what's happening on the ground. So it's not just I'll buy the club and then kind of leave it to someone else or I'll buy the club and, and you know, I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll throw a bit of money at it, at it and see what happens. They really want to know how that club's being run on the ground. You know, really strong salary efficiency. So, I, I mean, we can take you through maybe, you know, a couple of steps of that. So let's say, for example, let's take that Eastern European club, for example, that I mentioned before. They were challenging top three every season. They were qualifying for Europe regularly, but very, very domestic in terms of player trading very kind of strict kind of salary structure in terms of being efficient, but perhaps weren't exploring kind of other markets. So right from, you know, just giving that that kind of brief information, we did a lot of, of in-depth study to, to to get to that point. But that brief information I'm giving you there for an investor, straight away they can now see where are the efficiencies that they could 
um, or where are the inefficiencies of the club that they can take advantage of in a sporting sense, as well as all the other commercial information that they might be given about a club. And then that allows them to kind of think, right, okay, how, how would we do this then? How would we help this club to the next stage? So I think these are the areas which, yeah, with this kind of differing investor type coming onto the market, that's really changing the way that, that the clubs run. I also think probably, and, and, and John would know a little bit more about this than, than, than me, but I think the regulatory changes which will come about through having American investors will, again, change the, the way that, 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 the, that the markets run. So, for example, for, for many years, I've not really understood why a salary cap wasn't something which was investigated. You know, there are certain mechanisms of a salary cap that, that, that would obviously need to abide by, for example, EU law, but certainly something that is, is realistic. And that would unlock a lot of value in clubs because, you know, the, the risk of going into a club, spending huge amounts of money, still not achieving what you want to achieve and, and then having to sell the club with, with massive debts is something which has, you know, been recurring, a recurring theme with, with clubs. With American investors coming in, they're used to that structure, that kind of salary cap. They want to know their costs in advance. And in, in American sport, you do. Basically, you know your cost base well, well in advance. And with those kind of changes slowly slowly starting to, to to happen through uefa at the minute but but long term maybe across all, all leagues or with some leagues taking the taking the lead with with salary caps then again that's changing the market and that again will will allow us to do a lot more kind of in-depth work about which clubs are able to compete with those regulatory kind of restrictions on them in terms of player trading or in terms of uh, salary caps etc cetera, etc cetera. so no it's a really interesting market and, and very changeable at the minute so, John, we've heard how new investors might consider sporting areas for potential efficiencies, factors to unlock value and so on, changing up player trading models. What should an investor consider when they're investing in terms of commercial considerations? And also, because we have seen particularly, you know, I think we'll come on to talk about multi-club ownership models, but that investors taking either minority or majority ownership stakes what what are the kind of differences that should be considered where that's in effect as well yeah okay thanks alex taking the, the first of those then around sort of commercial considerations just going back to what jolly said i think people acquire clubs for a multitude of reasons and for some it's still that sort of desire to give something back maybe it's the the local boy done good i think you mentioned johnny and you do still get that but i think those stories are less frequent um, as the cost of buying clubs is rising because then the barrier to entry is also rising and it means that the, the sort of local business person maybe is not quite as able to identify clubs to acquire as maybe they would have been a few years ago. So increasingly it is, it's ultra high net worth individuals, sovereign states, private equity, investor groups, and the sort of private equity side of things. In US sport, there are still limits on the ability to invest in franchises if you've got private equity, but that's not the case in Europe, particularly with football. I do think the regulators will catch up with that at some point and there'll be some overlay around how these investments can take place and sort of multi-club ownership, but it's a bit of a way off at, at this point in time. But the reasons for people acquiring clubs can just be very varied. So in some cases, it's, it's ego, it's political influence, it's soft power, it can be some combination of all of those. And sometimes the reason's just not clear at all. But I think the focus today for investors on the clubs that they bought particularly or the focus we're going to put on today is around how they can drive improved performance on and off the pitch and that's definitely not straightforward i think investors from other sports or from franchises in the us when they're looking at football clubs in in europe they may think it's easier than it actually is but there are definitely real nuances that differ from league to league and from club to club 
lots and lots of variables. But the things that I would say are important for investors to consider, there are, there are three main ones, really. So it's the sort of structure of the deal. It's their risk appetite and it's the return on investment that they want and the time horizon they want that in. So taking those one by one, the deal structure, there are many different types. So you have people taking a kind of minority interest that, that we spoke about, people taking full control. It could be part of a multi-club ownership. Increasingly, these sort of athlete investor groups where you've got um, groups of people getting together that have made their money in maybe it's the NFL or the NBA or you see pop stars and Lewis Hamilton, I think, was trying to buy Chelsea. So these sorts of groups of investors are very different. You didn't see this five years ago, probably even two to three years ago. So understanding like what the structure of your deal is going to be, I think, is quite key for the investor group. And then the risks that you might face, understanding those, so market risk, whether your media rights are going to continue to grow as, as planned, that's a big revenue stream, whether sponsorship is going to continue to grow, whether the league that you're investing in has got a profile that will continue to grow. There's sort of execution risk, so that's looking at whether the management team that comes in is going to be able to perform and improve things. Like performance risk itself, which is inherently difficult, you can't always predict how how a club is going to perform it's not something you can necessarily plan for although you may hope that you can do i think jeremy you mentioned relegation and the sort of jeopardy around relegation but that's also a massive jeopardy to your revenue streams you drop down a division and you think of the difference between the sort of premier league and the efl huge damage to your revenue streams and you can probably stand that for a season or two you get parachute payments but if you can't get back, then that's a, a big hit to the revenue that you've got. And clearly, it's a hit to the value that you've you've invested in the club. And the aim really is to, to try and identify which risks are going to exist and go in with your eyes wide open. So if you, if you identify big commercial risks, think about how you can mitigate those risks and, and sort of prevent them from either manifesting or at least limiting the potential damage that they have. And then the third one is sort of return on investment, which I think we'll probably come back to. So I won't, won't cover in too much detail, but are you going to make money? A lot of these investor groups, they want to make money. Is that realistic and in what time frame? And I think you asked the question as well about the sort of minority versus majority point. So kind of address that one too. If you've got majority ownership, obviously your ability to control what goes on in the club is significantly higher. You can You can call the shots. So for, for many people, that is an attractive proposition because you're effectively playing fantasy football. You want to be able to pick the team. You want to be able to do what you want. So you do see investors that are interested in that. From a minority perspective, the challenge you have there is a lack of control and influence, potentially. It depends on how you structure the deal on the way in. And it can be used as a, a sort of stepping stone to gaining majority control. And I think the, the more interesting one at the moment is Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos at Manchester United. Well, the rumours at this point in time, as we're recording this, is that he's about to take a 25% sort of minority stake in, in Manchester United. And you would think, why would you do that if you don't have influence? But again, just reacting to sort of press stories, it sounds like he's negotiated on the way in minority stake, but a position where him and his management team are effectively controlling football operations. How that works in the structure at Manchester United, who knows? But that's, that seems to be the idea, which does give him some influence. But yeah, I mean, I guess if, if you're able to negotiate on the way in some level of influence and some level of control and you're able to sort of have a say in the, in the running of the club, that would be more attractive to you. Personally, if I was investing in a club, I would want that. But the idea of putting 1.5 billion on the table to be a bystander as things go on around you, probably not that attractive. And from my perspective, I think it's hard to believe that 
Radcliffe, being the successful businessman that he is and has been over many years, has not got a plan that's going to take him from where he is now to where he wants to be, which yeah, probably ownership of the club. Great, John. And as you say, let's get on to you're looking to buy a club. We've been through the processes that you and Jeremy have talked about, and we're now looking at how we can how we can take that club forward. We, we had Simon Hallett on the Business Behind Sport podcast some while ago, the owner of Plymouth Argyle Football Club, who've obviously gone from League Two up to the Championship under his mentorship. And he was talking about the correlation between investment and performance on the pitch being you know, not too bad in football when you compare it to corporate world, that by and large, what you spend is sort of what you get from on-field performance. So, Jeremy, as, as a potential owner or, or a new owner is looking at how to progress up the pyramid, how should they approach modelling their squad over, say, a, an investment cycle, a three to five year period? How, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, no, it's a good good question. I think what you find with the, let's say, it would, exactly what you mentioned there with, with, with Simon, where, where he's saying that the investment pretty much aligns with with performance over a certain period of time there are obviously season to season the season to season variance football's a, a low scoring game and therefore there's quite a lot of variance in terms of in terms of on pitch output but but generally speaking over a kind of 3 to 5 year period you can probably well, there's a very strong correlation between between on field kind of salary budget and on field performance so I, I think in that sense the idea really is to look at how you structure your squad how you structure the departments around that to try to get a competitive advantage. So that's some of the things that we talk to investors about, not only after they've invested, but before they invest. So the first step for me would be to kind of assess what does success look like for that particular club. So there might be a short list of three or four you know, clubs that uh, an investor is looking at, or maybe it's a multi-club group. We had a very interesting discussion with a, with a multi-club investor who wanted to align their kind of commercial thesis, their investment thesis with the sporting outputs of the clubs. And it was a quite an interesting commercial thesis. So essentially they had a background in kind of maximizing stadium output so that their, their experience was in the entertainment sector. So basically their idea was to find clubs across Europe who had very strong kind of stadium infrastructure and exploit that in terms of kind of secondary revenue or maybe even primary revenue, which they could then invest into the football clubs that they bought. But they also didn't want to take their eye off the fact that by buying multiple clubs in multiple different countries, they would need to align that. So if we go back to kind of that discussion about multi-club groups and, and how often they're not particularly aligned, often the, the kind of idea behind buying these multiple clubs is let's buy distressed assets, let's assess whether these clubs are on the market for less than they would otherwise be going for if they weren't in the current situation, either debt-ridden or maybe they've been relegated or et cetera, et cetera. That's normally the kind of primary driver of, of buying a club. In this particular case, and in the cases that we try to advise to, to to investors, is let's try and get some kind of on-pitch alignment. So, for example, if you're buying a club in Portugal and you're looking to buy a, a second club in, in South America, for example, or you're looking for another club, maybe South America would be a good market to provide a kind of incoming you know, influx of talent into Portugal. And maybe buying a club in Brazil would, would, would fit that. As opposed to, for example, buying you know one club in Poland, one club in Brazil, one club in Norway, and suddenly you end up with this kind of mishmash of cultures, mishmash of styles of play, mishmash of, of the way in which football is, you know, the way that players are managed, the way that, that the business is managed. So, as I say, this kind of alignment idea, whether that's 
you know, with your first club investment or whether that's with a multi-club group is kind of the first thing. Figuring out what does success look like? What does the club look like? How does that kind of fit into your investment thesis? And can you align both your kind of commercial investment thesis with your sporting investment thesis? So that's the first thing is just getting getting to grips with with what the club looks like. And, and that a lot of the time will be done through number one, data insights that we can provide in terms of the transfer flow of players and so knowing where players move, where they've been successful in the past. So looking at, uh, at previous trends of, of transfer flows, looking at kind of on-pitch performance and how players move from one market to another. So the strength of league being one very important model that we use, looking at how players move between leagues and figuring out which teams in those leagues are being successful and why. So that's kind of one kind of part of it is the the kind of the fit the second part is, is as you say, the kind of post-acquisition side. So how does an investor get the maximum out of their squad or, or get the maximum of, uh, out of their kind of on-pitch sporting performance? So first of all, assessing that budget versus performance factor. So how much do you need to spend to be in a certain place? We did some really interesting analysis for a Belgian club, which was part of a multi-club group. They were in the second division at the time. They were looking to get promoted. We did a lot of work with them to help them through that process. And then we looked at what happens if you do get promoted. How much do you need to spend to stay in the top division? And we found that there were certain amounts of money, certain budgetary spends, which would almost guarantee, okay, nothing's guaranteed in sport, but almost guarantee that you would avoid relegation, which obviously would be the initial target of a promoted club. So we found that there was a certain number that you could hit and I think it was something like a 9% chance of relegation by hitting this number. And so straight away, the, the owner can then say, well, okay, that's my kind of starting point. That's the number I need to spend to make sure that you know we're, we're reducing the risk by the amount that we feel comfortable with. And then it's about structuring your squad. And if we go back to your what you mentioned about, about Simon Hallett, I mean, who's a very smart owner and doing, doing really good things. I think that kind of long-term vision and saying, right, let's build this over a five-year period is actually probably the best way to go because what it allows you to do is it allows you to buy players in or to trade players in or alternatively to utilize your academy to bring through players who otherwise you couldn't afford to buy at their peak. But what that also means is that you have to be very, very patient and the fans need to be patient and you need to avoid that risk of during that period of taking a player who's 19, who has a ceiling you know, or has a, a potential growth of an amount which would take him beyond the type of player that you could afford to buy yourself at that point. So taking a player who's 19, 20 now, who when they're 25 is projected to be at a certain level. And this is the type of algorithms and models that, that we use at Analytics FC. If you can take that projection over a period of time and say, look, we expect this player to get to here. There's obviously always variance within those types of projections. But if you you know have a, a good stable of young players and you say, right, there's our five-year plan. By the fifth year, we feel that this group of players can take us to this point. And then that means that you're essentially got a much more efficient budget than you might otherwise have had. The problem with football, unfortunately, <laughs> Johnny, is that people don't have this patience. So, you know, the, the minute something goes wrong or the minute that, you know, you might cash out a player, you know, who's developed to a certain period, to, to a certain point, and then it's time to, to make your money and, and, and reinvest that, sometimes that either that decision gets made too early Alternatively, people lose confidence in the plan that they've put in place, even though if they just hold the course, they might well be in a better position. But suddenly it's no, you know, we're flirting with relegation at this point. We, we just need to go out and buy an experienced centre forward. Let's go and spend our money. Suddenly the wage structure goes out of the, 
of the window, the salary efficiency is gone. The model is, is gone because you're now blocking the pathway for some of these talents to come through. So as I say, it's, it's actually a really difficult and really kind of fraught industry because you've got this risk of relegation and you've got this risk of not achieving what the fans might think you should be achieving over a, over a shorter period. But actually, if you hold the course, then you can end up beating beating the budget, being more efficient than your budget. And in, in essence, that is the aim, really, when it comes to kind of structuring your squad and, and, and analysing that. Because, yeah, because as we mentioned right at the top of when I started speaking, which is that unfortunately in football, or fortunately, depending on, on who you are, the performance levels are very, very correlated with the amount of money you spend. So, yeah, beating someone with a bigger budget than you takes either thinking outside the box or alternatively long-term thinking either one of those might get you the the result that you're looking for and yeah we've seen examples of that recently which is great people like you know clubs like Brentford and, and Brighton who are doing great things so yeah there are examples in the market Plymouth being a good one so there are examples throughout the leagues in, in the UK and across Europe as well. So John you can't just throw money at stuff and there's there's a couple of reasons Jeremy's just explored the fact that looking for efficiencies is obviously a really good thing but also we have mentioned regulation a few times today here in the UK we have an incoming financial regulator for football so I assume any planned expenditure needs to be modeled for achievability within such frameworks so things like financial fair play how does that work and can you explain how you would work with with Jeremy and the analytics FC on that process yeah sure I think this is a really important area and one that's going to have a lot of focus over the next two to three years as you mentioned there's the potentially a regulator coming in England for football but we've already seen the Premier League increasingly focused on compliance in this area with some sort of high profile matters that that are underway the same is actually true of UEFA. So they're phasing in various different new rules, looking at sort of squad salary and that type of thing, insolvency. So I think there is going to be an increasing focus on this. Buyers clearly need, they just need to be aware of any risk that the, the club is facing. So potentially, if you fail to meet FFP requirements, if you call it FFP, non-compliance potentially leads to fines, it could be points deductions, which could impact on your finishing position in the table and, and money that you get from that. It could lead to relegation, it could have legal action against you from other clubs, and certainly that's one of the um, topics that's being discussed quite widely in the UK at the moment. And there are actually, there are loads of clubs that are at risk of falling foul of FFP rules in their various different guises within sort of European football, particularly given the current economic climate and us coming out of COVID and the issues that that has caused. So definitely something as part of a due diligence that I would encourage people to consider I mean, slightly more unusual than, than the usual is, the, is the, the Chelsea situation that they have at the moment, which they've actually self-reported the issues that they faced from the Abramovich era. And again, I'm not connected to this, not involved in it at all, but the stories in the, in the press are around sort of historic off-book payments that have been made to agents and companies with links to players. And as I said, Chelsea have self-reported and there's a process ongoing there, but Clearly, that could have a potential impact on their historic compliance around FFP. An unusual one, but the sort of thing I believe actually was picked up during the due diligence exercise that the ownership group put under underway when they were actually taking over Chelsea. So yeah, significant issue. And how would we actually do that as part of a due diligence exercise? Well, you would, you'd kind of review it. You'd review it, you'd model it, you understand the rules that exist, whether they're the UEFA rules, whether it's national rules. You understand the current position that the club is in and typically you're submitting returns around your compliance so you'd be able to review the returns that they've submitted to the relevant regulator and identify how close they are to any 
limits for FFP. Following on from the returns, you know, clearly there could be changes about what's going on in the club. So what changes have there been? What changes are envisaged? And I'm thinking here primarily on the player trading side of things. So changes to wage structures, potential bonuses that, that might exist if clubs are successful, player sales, incoming deals, whether you've got payments that um, kick in after somebody's made a certain amount of appearances. There are lots of different things that can kind of move the dial for FFP compliance if you are on the, the edge of breaching. So being able to understand what they are and, and thinking about whether there's ways to sort of manage that or mitigate it would be quite key. And then thinking things about like bans from European football. If you're banned from European football, that's going to have a big impact on revenue streams, both broadcasting revenue and match day revenue. So you would want to have a kind of clear understanding of whether that's a risk. And again, just going back to what I've said on a number of occasions before, it's about protecting the buyer of the club, understanding what risks you might face, and then thinking about any protections you can put in place to mitigate that. And that can be sort of structural stuff within the club when you take it over, or it can be building in warranties, protections into the actual deal itself. Great. So far, let's assume in our hypothetical situation here that we've our prospective buyer has done the squad modelling that Jeremy talked about, and and that's been balanced against financial planning and compliance with financial regulations. And all of this stacks up for a majority investment, and that that investment is sustainable over time to give the club a reasonable chance of achieving its goals as a, a position in the pyramid. And I'm assuming at that point that the club, you know, is revalued and. So that that investment sort of return is clear. On acquisition of the club, Jeremy, got a plan, but obviously now we bought the club, plans often don't survive contact with reality. How would you encourage a new owner to implement a long-term, thoughtful squad-building programme? How do they go about that? And you know, do you need to sack all the sporting directors and everybody or, you know, what steps do you first take, if that makes sense? Yeah, sure. Before I get into that, you mentioned there about kind of knowing, you know, what the, the, the plan will be and knowing what there is on the ground and, you know, knowing what, what the next step is. I think it was quite interesting. We, we did a project with a club, just came into my head there about doing this project with a club in the Netherlands, whereby the, the current owner was so there was a, an investor that wanted to, to invest into the club. We went to, to do a site visit, which I'll, I'll get into in, in just a moment, to explore what was on the ground at the club and, and, and go through a, a kind of what we call a, a mini audit. And what we found was that the ideas floating around the club were, well, we're investing in our training ground, we're building an academy, and because this club is, it was a club in the Netherlands, because this club is in the Netherlands, then of course that will have you know a knock-on effect in terms of you know developing players to, to to sell so i think one of the initial kind of aspects of doing this kind of sporting due diligence and, and doing this audit process is actually to assess the assumptions that have been made by the previous owners because a lot of the information that you're going to get about a club are going to come from the people who are at the club currently now okay if you're a majority owner, then the owner's gone. But the other people at the, who are left at the club, the CEO, the sporting director, the key senior management staff, are going to be working off you know, some of the ideas and, and vision and, and mission of, of the previous ownership group. So for example, taking that one idea that we have there that, okay, this club at the moment is investing in a training ground, it's investing in building the academy infrastructure. And when that academy really starts to fly with this new investment in it, then of course, because we're in the Netherlands, we're going to be producing players. And so really delving in and, and testing those assumptions can really help you to take 
the next steps. So the, just as an example here, we actually did a an assessment, essentially a heat map of the country in terms of kind of player development, player productivity. And so we looked at the Netherlands, we looked at you know where are players produced, where are the you know the the high the hotspots, let's say, in the country. And we found that this particular area of the country was a complete black hole for player development. Had never, there was no history of player development. There are quite a few professional clubs in that area, but it's just not an area that produces footballers. So straight away, you kind of punched a hole in an assumption that was made, which if you'd have followed that assumption as part of your you know, process of buying the, the, the club, straight away, you're then kind of you get this gut punch of, well, actually, that 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 business model is not going to work. We're going to have to to adjust here. So clearly, you want that as part of your due diligence process. But okay, let's assume that you've done that. So those kind of insights are part of that. But when you actually hit the ground on on day one of the you know the the post acquisition process, we do what we call a, a full audit. I mentioned before we do a mini audit when we do the due diligence process and kind of carry out the sporting due diligence, we do do on-site visits. The problem with doing an on-site visit during the due diligence process is that you don't have as much access. There's obviously problems around or could be issues around the current owner not necessarily wanting his staff to know that, you know, there's a potential sale on the on the cards. So there are certain aspects of of being very careful in the way that you undertake a, an on-site visit. So obviously making sure that you know, that these things are kept as quiet as possible, only interviewing staff who are kind of au fait with the, the, the current situation that the owner's comfortable with you speaking with. And also, you won't necessarily have access to all the documentation that you want, all the strategic plans, all the processes, all the, um, I mean, probably within a, a due diligence process would have access to the financial documents and, and contractual things, but not necessarily some of the strategic stuff, some of the yeah, some of the kind of day-to-day operational things. So that's why I say that the due diligence process would normally have what we call a mini audit. But as soon as you're in that phase of post-acquisition, this is where a company like ours would really come into its uh, into its elements. So with the experience that we have with kind of ex-sporting directors, ex-CEOs of clubs, and the ability to kind of delve in, into data quite quickly in terms of kind of trends and, and forecasts and probabilities, we can really start to delve into what we do. So I'll give you an example of what we d- would do on a, an on-site audit. So there are three kind of elements. There's the documentary evidence, there's the observational evidence, and there's the interviews. So the idea is you're trying to get an idea of how a club runs operationally. So documents are helpful. So someone has a strategic plan, it's written down, and you have kind of policies and procedures, and you can start to assess what a club is trying to do. The interesting thing is when you start to cross-reference that with interviews so you can start to talk with you know the sporting director and say okay well here's the plan on paper give us your version of events what what do, what do you feel is is you know the strengths and weaknesses of the club where what's the vision the sporting vision what's the you know how do you organize your departments you know and you start to see whether they actually do overlap whether they do cross over and whether there actually is a delivery of the documentation that's actually there with the club often and we do find this a lot in football unfortunately is they're not necessarily run in as an efficient way as a lot of businesses so you end up with there was an italian club that we uh, audited which i thought was quite funny they said that they were artisanal their terminology basically meant they didn't have any documents about anything which sometimes can be fine so for example there was a club in the czech republic who didn't really have documents i mean they had some nice brochures and they had some nice kind of you know high-end strategic documents but actually their staff were extremely professional had basically taken this club from being a real mid-table team in the Czech Republic to being 
a club that would regularly qualify for Europe, very experienced in kind of UEFA competition and, and dealing with the kind of match day regulations that are in place by UEFA for UEFA competitions, dealing with, you know, various kind of aspects of club management. Very, very good. And actually, what you can do by interviewing those types of staff is that you find out that there's very, very high quality staff. There's not so much on the documentation side, but the club runs very efficiently because of the expertise of those staff. Whereas the other club I mentioned, the Italian club, very poorly qualified staff, not any documentation really kind of you know run off the hoof a lot of influence from the owner really the owner making almost every decision and just kind of dictatorially telling people this is this is what's going to happen so i think in one case you end up being able to build an action plan based on all these different departments so we have all the different dimensions of the club from the the sporting side in terms of the strategic side to the coaching to the scouting to sports science to all the different elements of how a club would run building an action plan for each one of those departments based on your interviews your observational we'll obviously go and watch training we'll go and watch the way that people work and and, and how they do things so a really in-depth on-site visit which ends up with an action plan and that action plan really most of the time can be broken down into a strategic plan for a good two to five years what we would normally do would be to to really focus on that first hundred days and say where's the low-hanging fruit and really provide the key points within those action plans to the staff of each department to the ownership group to the sporting director we have at times been asked to kind of supply interim sporting directors or interim sporting staff or at least kind of advisory staff who are on site or seconded to clubs to support that first hundred days and then often we'll hand over to the more permanent staff but yeah that's essentially the the kind of key aspect of that so there's lots of that initial data driven insights piece around kind of assessing the the assumptions of a club, assessing the salary efficiencies and all the things we mentioned before in terms of the squad side of things, using data, using algorithms, using forecasting. So that's kind of one part which would normally be done during the due diligence process, but can be done post-acquisition as well. And then there's really getting to grips with that on-site audit and really breaking down an action plan so that you can hand that over to the staff so that they know exactly what the next steps can and, and should be. So yeah, quite an in-depth thing, quite intense for the first few weeks. But yeah, once you've done that process, once you've really kind of unearthed all the red flags, all the, the buried bodies, you, you end up with a, a pretty good way forward. And, and from there, the investment group or the new ownership group can really focus on building a new vision, a new mission, and, and then communicating that to staff. And John, at this stage, what governance and regulatory issues should be considered early by the new board? Well, I think to start with, remediating any issues that were sort of identified in the due diligence process would be key and fairly obvious. And then we've already mentioned FFP at some length, so considering compliance around that. And then also worth considering any potential impact of regulatory changes regarding multi-club ownership. So if that's a model that you're looking to initiate or looking to grow, I think going into that with your eyes wide open, because that dynamic is is certainly changing and will continue to change over the next sort of two to three years as people sort of grapple with what it means for competitive balance in football. So put those ones to one side and thinking about some other stuff. I think something that can be forgotten, particularly by investors that are coming from overseas into football in Europe, is the role of the fans in all of this. So compared to a normal corporate where your stakeholders can be many and and varied and, and, and potentially shareholders being the key ones there, your key stakeholders in football are fans, right? So the general public and, and, and supporters of your club. So I think getting some kind of level of governance around fan engagement is really important and something that gets overlooked. 
Because you think we're all probably football fans here, you know, and there's a change of ownership at your club. Maybe you're excited, transfer, splurge, or, you know, hopefully it's going to be lead to some success. And by the time your owners are going, you're probably quite pleased to see the back of them. But also probably quite nervous of the change and sort of keen to have a voice in how the, the club progresses going forward. And, you know, fans know the club better than anybody else. And I think for owners coming in, to forget the fans and, and not think about them as they're sort of making changes and initiating new sort of direction for the club is very bad. <laughs> it's a very bad idea. So I think making the decisions that you do make should always be cognizant of the fans and considering the things like the traditions of the club. So there are always going to be red lines for fans, whether it's the name of the club. I remember Hull trying to change the name a few years back, the club crest, the colours that are playing in stadium changes so name of the stadium being changed potentially sounds like a good idea you can get a, a sponsor to do that but do the fans like that are they on board with the changing name the location of the stadium sort of structural changes to the stadium those sorts of things that fans really care about they've been going to that ground for many many years you need to think about that when you're sort of looking to make sweeping changes that might be in your plan but might not be particularly welcomed by the fans and i would say considering a fan representative on the board as well so that the fans feel that they do actually have a voice in the room when decisions about their club are being made, I think is key. So that first part of it, I think fan engagement is really important. Second part of it would be the actual day-to-day running of the club. And Jeremy, you've talked about some of this stuff already, but from the perspective of, sort of somebody like myself working in governance, compliance, um, and looking at this area, I would be thinking, like, who is going to run the club? You know, On a day-to-day basis, who is actually going to be running the club? there'll be an existing management team in place. So as an investor, you're going to be thinking, do I trust them? Do I believe that these guys are going to be successful? Are the decisions that are being made the right ones? And how much do you want to to change that structure? So do you want a representative yourself within that management team or do you want to change the management team entirely? And I don't know the the details of this one again, but the rumours around Jim Ratcliffe coming to United, sounds like he wants to rip up the current management structure at the club. And you could argue that it's a club that's been underperforming for some time and he's clearly got some ideas around how to, to change that and restructure that. And within a club, you're going to have people that are responsible for the commercial side, people that are responsible for the sporting side. And you probably don't want the same person doing both. And you, you see the well-run clubs that have got the right people in the right positions and you see the badly run clubs that have one or two people making all key decisions regardless of their actual sort of practical expertise in a particular area. Thinking about what sort of direction you want to go in, I think, is also important as part of your sort of structuring of the club and structuring of new people. And we've mentioned the different sort of strategies that clubs might have around being successful. So things like building from the academy or player trading models or building into European football and, and having that as a, a key revenue stream. So I think you need to have some sort of strategic vision for what you want the club to be doing. And then you need to build a governance structure and a sort of management structure that gives you the best chance of being successful there. And then the final one I would I would talk about would be the, the most, maybe the most obvious, is the board. What is the board going to look like? And my suggestion for that, from anecdotal and experience itself, is it's got to be a diverse group of people. And when I say diverse, I mean sort of diversity of all types, and including diversity of thought. And a club like Brentford, I think, has done this really incredibly well with sort of representatives on the board from business community, legal community and the general community around the club. And whilst I think it's important to have football people making football decisions, 
just because you've been in football for 20, 30, 40 years, it doesn't mean you're the best person at running a business. And if you have the same set of people, they're all football people, it can lead to some groupthink, people making sort of poor decisions or outdated decisions that can alienate fan base or the wider public. And I'm thinking examples during COVID would have been certain clubs furloughing all staff and that causing support to outrage. And potentially if there'd been other people in the room making that decision, that decision wouldn't have been made. Other ones that have been made where I suggest there's been a lack of diversity of thought have been the European Super League, where everybody that was involved in creating that project thought it was a great idea and it wasn't. And that was very clearly apparent when that idea went out into the mainstream. And I think having a lot of people that have talked about that, that have the same priorities and objectives probably led to that decision being made and then the backlash against it. And then you see things like players with off-field issues and the way sometimes clubs manage those. And some, some do it well, some do it badly. And I'd suggest that the ones that do it well have probably had a, a reasoned debate about it and have got various different people in the room with different ideas and thoughts. And then they're able to come to a decision that is probably better reflective of what their stakeholders, so the fans and the public, are going to consider to be important. And the final part on the board, I think, is I mentioned sort of bringing in professionalism from outside the sport, and I think that is key. So having strong non-exec directors, people that are willing to sort of challenge the status quo or challenge the decisions of the ownership investors, people that can sort of, yeah, help, I guess, set the agenda for the club, but do it with some level of objectivity. So I think all those things are important. Well, thanks, John and Jeremy. So we've got our hypothetical client. They've been through this process, as as you both set out, and we've bought the club. We've we've obviously brought in some lawyers who who have helped with the legal side of it and and a financial advisor on the deal structure, but we've got them there. And in doing so, I think it's been really fascinating. Today, when we launched jointly launched this podcast on our respective channels, we're also going to announce an alliance between Ancura and Analytics FC in this area of club acquisition. And I think it's clear from this podcast why the market's sort of taken us to this point. But Jeremy, could you just talk a little bit about why the market's got us to where we are and what benefits this alliance will bring to our respective clients? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Johnny, was that we obviously just on this podcast, you can hear that there's two kind of aligned but differing perspectives from two companies who are specialized in two different areas but are very very key parts of this acquisition process so without using too much of a kind of consultancy term but you know gives you that 360 approach which i think has been lacking up until now and certainly what we found when we've spoken to clubs is that there is kind of that sporting piece missing and and some of the things that that john highlighted in terms of some of the specialty areas with anchor and kind of reputational analysis and kind of looking at at money laundering and and corruption and and unfortunately you know football does have those nasty areas that are linked to it especially in, in in some areas of of europe so I think some of these kind of speciality areas, which wouldn't necessarily be part of the due diligence process, you know, with other kind of service providers. For me, the market has kind of brought us to them rather than the other way around. These kind of holes have been there and we're kind of filling those gaps in the market. So as I say, for me, it's this kind of 360 approach of an alliance between between Ancora and Analytics FC being able to really handle everything from the start of a deal. So really from the outset. So let's say an investor comes to us and says, I don't know who I want to invest in. Here's my investment thesis, but I don't know which markets are going to suit us best. We don't know the clubs 
necessarily who are going to be the ones to fit this. Can you help us from day dot? And I think, you know, right from that point where we start to use data to make projections, to look at the best markets, to look at best fit, right the way through to the financial and legal due diligence, right the way through to making the deal happen. And then those post acquisition aspects that John mentioned about, you know, deal is, is ever you know, is ever straightforward and there might be kind of legal disputes and various other things. And then the advice post-acquisition that we've just talked about in terms of, yeah, anything from regulatory staff, FFP to, you know, structuring sporting departments, structuring academies, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what we've got here is kind of quite a new approach, something that I've certainly not seen on, on the market before. And I think what it allows investors to do, investment groups to do, and VC, private equity to do is to come to us and essentially say, well, okay, Can you take us from start to finish? That would obviously is ideal because it means that there's a consistency of informational input. But also there's the option to kind of pick and choose and to say, okay, well, look, we've got our own guys who do this part. They're going to do the assessment on this area, but we need support in this area, this area, and this area. So it kind of allows this kind of menu approach of saying, well, where's the expertise that that, that we're lacking? And I think this is where there's a number of areas where both Ancora and Analytics FC are doing things, offering services which don't exist elsewhere, certainly don't exist to the level that we're delivering them at at the moment to very high level investors across a whole range of markets, a whole range of languages, a whole range of countries, because football's a global business. So it's not, perhaps there are other audit, for just taking audit as an example, maybe there are auditors in the UK who audit certain types of businesses, you know, manufacturing businesses or whatever, and they're only able to deliver that within the UK you know, as a jurisdiction, for example. But obviously with football, we need to be right across the globe in terms of our knowledge base and in terms of the, the, the work that we've done in the past and in terms of our body of work and experience. So yeah, for, for me, it's that that real 360 approach and, and being able to hit all bases and, and being able to help any type of investor, whether that's a small investment, you know, a club in the Baltics, you know, at one or two million, right up to, you know, billion pound transactions for top five league clubs so yeah it's a really interesting market to be in right now because there's a big influx of of investors so it's a nice it's a nice time to be launching this alliance but also i think it's the right service to be launching too so john we've heard about the the benefits of of us working together what are the benefits to owners doing this kind of work because this full 360 approach hasn't really been a common one to date yeah, I mean, touching on Jeremy's points, really, and the, the sort of 360 view, I think that is the key part of it. It gives buyers the ability to have a holistic view of what it is they're buying. Or potentially, it sort of helps them to triage because it doesn't mean that you go through with a deal just because you start a deal. So it enables you to kind of make decisions and the best decisions on the way in or make the decision to walk away and maybe look elsewhere. And the key, I think, for a buyer and for success is trying to find something that aligns with your ideals and aspirations and you know football is a unique business it's very different to many other businesses and what we see within the corporate world and even within football there's sort of nuances and and uniqueness because although it's a relatively simple sort of structure as I I set out at the start and the revenue streams are, are quite straightforward running a football club in the UK is very different to France or to Brazil or to Asia particularly with clubs that are looking to build a multi-club model they are looking to invest in different markets and trying to apply the exact same lens that you would apply to a club in the premier league to a club in asia you know that's not likely to be successful so from my perspective i think to quote radiohead it's sort of no alarms and no surprises you want to basically know what you're getting into make informed decisions mitigate risk 
and really just give yourself the best possible opportunity for the transaction that you're entering into to be successful. And that's kind of what this this alliance would bring, really. So marrying the on-field success and the on-field operations with what you have off the field and doing that can be complicated. It requires sort of full assessment of potential risks for you to be successful. And that's, that's really what this alliance brings. It's that sort of overview of, of on-field, off-field and positioning clubs, really, and owners to be successful. Well, fantastic, John. Thank you very much for that. And I think we're up on time now. That's been a fascinating journey through the process of how to buy a football club. And I would just thank you, Jeremy, for coming on the Ancura Business Behind Sport podcast as our guest. So thank you, Jeremy. And that's goodbye from me. And also thank you, John, very much for joining us on the Analytics FC podcast. So that is also goodbye from me. So that was the Analytics FC podcast in partnership with the Ankura Sports Business podcast. You can find more of our podcasts on our SoundCloud page, and you can also check out more of what we're up to on our website at analyticsfc.co.uk. See you again soon.